Hi everyone, and uh, we're back for another episode of our podcast. I'm here with Jude, um, Jude Samuel. Hey, buddy. And um, this week we have the a very special, a very charismatic guest is Roman, Mr. Roman De La Cruz. He's a native of Guam. He's also one of the founders of Fokai Industries, which uh, our first guest, Mr. Tone Anderson, has mentioned. They, you know, they they grew up together. They're best buds, and uh, he talked a bit about the history of Guam, cultures, how people, good vibes, and uh, things that we should be doing to connect with people around this world, especially nowadays. Um, and yeah. It's a lot of uh, offshoot about different things, but uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very interesting talk. So without further ado, um, it's Rome. Right, let's get this going, man. Right on. Viking, how are you doing? I am uh, fantastic. I mean, besides this whole thing, um, but uh, I'm still keeping it together we bought a i told you we, we bought a paddleboard the other day so i've been going out to the lakes and so that was a really highlight of the, of the whole yeah month. right on man yeah, embrace it and i know the i know the weather's colder out there so those inflatables uh are, are a lot more solid in the colder water uh. yeah when you bring them into the warm water i mean they still work but they kind of like you know it's like oh man it's a little bit slow if you're used to feeling like a, like a real solid board, but they're they're just great stuff altogether. <laughs> awesome. I don't I don't have I don't have the, the 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 weather or the means to have a paddleboard by me. I'm in London, <laughs> central <laughs> London. Yeah, we've only got the river, the river Thames, and that's it, man. <laughs> Wait, do people, are people paddleboarding in there? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> no. Hey, have you guys seen? That one magic dude, that, that one magician guy who walks on the River of Tines? No. Yeah, man. They, they're, they're this guy, I forget his name, but he's he, apparently he's a, he's kind of like the David Blaine of Europe. Oh, oh, um, oh, man. Oh, I know who you mean. Um, oh, damn. Uh, your name begins with D as well. I uh, see this. Uh, this is how it happens, man. Old people, we start to forget stuff now. Um, oh man, Viking, what are you? Are yeah, you 35? Yeah, nah. <laughs> now I'm 33. <laughs> 33 years old, Jude. How old are you? If you don't mind me asking. Ah, oh, anyway, on to the next question. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, okay. <laughs> No, good man, good, good, good. So, that was so a great interview. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, listen, man. So, tell tell me a little about a little bit about you, a little bit about yourself and stuff like that. You know, um, Guam. Um, Guam. I want to know about I, Guam, I, man. I'm going to grill you about that, by the way, Guam. What about also, Guam? What you're, you're the you're the international mystery, man. I mean, people heard about you, but they couldn't find anything about you, though. So no, you know why they call me that? The only the only reason why they call me that is because I lose my keys in every country. <laughs> <laughs> so the the international amount of mystery is actually in reference to my keys and my passport. <laughs> That's the most mysterious thing. But uh, what can I say, man? I'm uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, Dude, I'm, uh, I'm uh, half Filipino, half Gome, uh, Chamorro guy, born on Guam, uh, who 
um, in the course of being born on Guam, tried to have as much fun as possible uh, that I could have on Guam. And in the course of all of that, I uh, started to really appreciate Guam. And then in the course of really, really appreciating and loving Guam, made me want to, uh, you know, personally, I wanted to do something for Guam. So uh, the line of work that, uh, you know, uh, that I'm in right now, initially, I thought I was supposed to be a doctor, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. But in uh, the line of work that I am right now, I guess I just found another way to help people. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty much that. I, I, I stand up paddle surf, I bodyboard, I enjoy downhill skating, and I uh, sling rocks. Yeah, tell, tell us about the, the stone the stone slinging because it's um, I, I was looking at an interview uh, with you the other day and it, it talks about um, it's one of the things that are very uh, cultural with regards to, to Guam and to history and stuff like that. Oh yeah, stone slinging is massive for Guam. I mean, uh, if you look at our flag, you know, uh, for those who might be familiar with the flag, it has a symbol like this. Mm. And what that symbol is, it's in reference to... Uh, Sling stones, which is, uh, you know, this symbol. So they, these kind of rocks, these stones for years uh, have been, you know, being located in the beaches and, uh, you know, in the shore or in the jungles or whatever. And what these are, there's a lot of these are, are artifacts from hundreds or maybe even thousands of years ago. And people kind of raise the question with they're saying, with all this modernization, why do we still have these things that are still showing up hundreds of years Supposedly, after it had uh, been, um, you know, after it stopped uh, being practiced by the local people. So, archaeologists, historians, and everybody throughout this way of thinking has been able to decipher also from old Spanish documents that uh, stone slinging was a massive part of our culture. And, and uh, not only for warfare, but it was also for, uh, it was also for sport. So, mm-hmm. when you really look at I mean, for, for those that take a close look at uh, the Gomanian culture, we're the oldest Pacific Island culture, you know? So mm-hmm. in order to sustain ourselves, we're between the historian that you talk to, we're as, as young as 3,500 years old and as old as 5,000 years old, mm-hmm. if not even older. But in order to sustain life for that long, especially in a small island, you can't be warlike. You got to have some kind of... Uh, you have to have a really excellent way of coexistence. And so, you know, and, and, and in a sense, what we've been able to, uh, you know, what they've been able to deduce is that there was a massive appreciation for life right here. So the Slingstone, you know, and I could go on on about it, but the Slingstone says so many ways. It not, doesn't only talk about the proficiency of our, uh, of our ancestors as warriors, but it also talks about the proficiency of our warriors and craftsmen as thinking men, because we have, uh, you know, there have been so many different variations found in our sling stones, and it, what they've been able to agree is that we had a very uh, extensive knowledge of aerodynamics and hydrodynamics, which was really evident in our very advanced sailing vessels. Mm. Okay, what, what type of um, what type of rocks is it, are the stones made out of? Uh, you may you, you, they're made out of basalt. Uh, we've had some made out of basalt, a lot of limestone, you know, there's clay, uh, you know, some of the outer islands have even reported sling stones made out of meteorite, you know what I mean? Meteorite. So it's a pretty, uh, it, it, it's, it actually gets quite interesting and we even have some sling stones. Now for the longest time people, you know, because we're proud of being from Guam, 
we kind of uh, our historians were telling us that we were the only ones with this shape of a slingstone. Yeah. And you know, so we're saying, oh yeah, you know, so it really made us feel really, uh, really advanced. You know what I mean, as a people. But you know, after going through, and you know, we're involved with the international slinging sport right now, so we've been able to find that this shape has been very common uh, with more than fifty cultures uh, that have been slinging around the world independently. You know, like so. Imagine as as in, we're proud of slinging being from as slingers. We're proud of it because we know our ancestors used to do it. But there are at least fifty other cultures whose ancestors also used to do it. Some people have even made the count as high as 70. So when you look at this, when you look at if there are 50 other cultures that have been slinging stones and you find that commonality between people, you know, you start to, it kind of, when you really start to marinate in that, in that mindset, it kind of brings you to that, uh, you know, you arrive at that point saying, wow, we're, I mean, we spoke different languages. We never met each other, but we had appreciation for the same things. And we came to very similar conclusions in science, which is, like the shape of the stone. So it kind of shows us that we're not, you know, it, it's nice to know that you're thinking that people think you think the same. It's nice to know that you have common ground with people that are beyond so far beyond even your imagination, you know? So we, yeah. we've taken all those positives and we've really just immersed ourselves and marinated and slinging. And right now our, our ambition is massive. Uh, next year will be the 500 year anniversary of, uh, not just Guam and Spain's uh, first contact, but mm. there would be the Pacific Islands and European uh, explorers. That's the first not major contact that's ever happened. So next year, with yeah. the commemoration of this 500 years, we're looking to make a very big statement with uh, stone sling. Okay, okay. What what's the what brought about the resurgence? Because I. I... Uh, I can see it in like other cultures and stuff like, you know, uh, former colonies, etc. You know that search for you know that the youth or, or you know a certain generation has that search to kind of get back to the core of what kind of what they used to be like or what they what they kind of you know what their parents yeah, and, went through. So what what brought that around for yourselves? Well, for myself, you know, I, I, I can't speak for the rest of the island, but for myself is I've always been, uh, you know, being half Filipino and half Chamorro in Guam in the generation that I grew up, that was really a struggle because there was a great, uh, there was a lot of tension between Filipinos and Chamorros. So having to choose which side you want to represent or are, are you are you are you Filipino or are you Guamanian, whatever. And which made things even harder is the, the school that we, the, the village that we went to the school in was a very fighting village. So if you're going to make a statement, whether it's going to be as a Filipino or a Chamorro, you know, that statement, you're going to be fighting a lot. So, you know, I mean, growing up on Guam, I'd say just about every kid has been into several street fights in their life, but in, uh, you know, certain places there's more than others. So, um, anyways, what had brought it back is, um, I'd say people just really, you know, for a long time, the people on Guam, we when we were uh, westernized, we were kind of taught to believe that our culture was inferior and taught to believe that ways of practicing, uh, of fishing and farming, that these are like Neanderthalic, these are only for failing people. You know what I mean? I, it, seemed like, uh, it seemed like the victory wasn't really in what you could do physically. It was more on what you could achieve mentally. Mm -hmm. And because... You know what I mean? Just because we have different things, we started to think that farming and fishing and these things were just brutal things, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and saying, oh, no, I, you know, I don't want to be that farmer fisherman who's never really going, who, who we kind of started to believe that's never really going far in life. Mm-hmm. So we started to shun on those things that we were, we weren't just, we weren't just embracing or accepting Western, Westernization. We were actually chasing it. But then there came a time when we started to wake up and say, hey, man, our culture is worth freaking, you know, it's worth fighting for. It's worth understanding. We need to make this a bigger part of our education. It makes no sense that we live on this tropical island and and tomorrow history, Guam history covers about this much of your of our education, whereas U.S. history comes to about this much. Yeah. It's almost as if they're trying to tell us like our history is insignificant. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. so as we started to wake up with that, you know, the slingstone is something that's been revered and. Guam culture for a very long time, but you know, most people were satisfied with we revered it so much that we, you know, a lot of people didn't even want to touch it. You know what I mean? It was almost like taboo. Mm-hmm. There's a prior way of thinking before, like if you would when uh the, the our elders would find this in the jungle and that, that way of thinking still exists. It's, hey boy, leave it alone, don't touch that. You know what I mean? But now I think just because they came from a generation that was kind of trying to bury and move away from the old ways it was easier to think especially Mm -hmm. when we were when we so we used to have our own gods and our own way of uh our own concept of the afterlife yeah but in the course of colonization the people taught us that the ancestors that we were speaking to that these spirits that we were speaking to were not good they were evil Mm -hmm. you know so to the point where imagine where before we had a very intimate relationship with our ancestors you know, it was almost like the living and the dead were living comfortably among each other. Mm-hmm. But then now they started to tell us and know these spirits, these guys that you have this great relationship with. No, these are evil. The only spirit that's good has to come and look like this guy right here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Needs to look like Jesus or whatever. Yeah. Meanwhile, these motherfuckers are touching little boys and doing whatever. You know what I mean? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Not 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 everybody's like that. But, <laughs> you know, when, whenever we get in the mm-hmm. con- conversation of... of uh, just of how they really, man, you know, they took, and depending on the historian you talk to, but they dis, they, they, they disintegrated our population from between 70,000 to 90,000 indigenous, and they took us down to 3,000. Yeah. Yeah, this, uh, because I was reading some stuff, the, the, the smallpox and stuff like that as well. You know, it's 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 quite funny because it is a it is a reoccurring theme amongst amongst history. You know, as regards to actually colonization and the stuff that it brings, the good stuff that it brings, but also the bad, the bad about it, and the the way that cultures get you know destroyed and know. diminished. And now there's a resurgence of like people trying to discover like what their you know um, what their native ancestry was like. You know, it's quite interesting. You know? No, and I and I think it's a good opportunity because with this colonization came uh, some kind of modernization, and and even though you know these horrible things did happen in the past, now we can use some of the tools that we have of the future, some of the byproducts of this colonization. We can use these tools to help bring light to the past. You know what I mean? So it's like taking your opponent's weapon and using it against him, but in this case, now we're not thinking in terms of warfare we're thinking in terms of sustenance and and of uh overall well-being not just for us but for everybody and 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 it was actually that mindset which is good because that's a really good way to commemorate the uh commemorate the spirit that governed these lands that kept us 
alive and peaceful and well-fed and happy and satisfied for mm. thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Interesting, man. That's cool. That's absolutely cool, man. So, tell us about your brand, man. The brand. Fuckeye. Am um, I pronouncing it right? <laughs> what can I tell you about Fuckeye? Fuckeye's, boy, it's... Uh, man, it's... Golly, geez, it's uh, it's been uh, it's it's man. I don't even that. It's so hard to really, you know. It's amazing, man, because when you think about it, alone in your thoughts, you can think. Or personally, for me, I have like ten thousand thoughts, but then sometimes it's hard to even put it in like words. You know what I mean? Like it's almost. I think anybody who's spent enough time. Uh, watering their own plan or taking care of something, taking care of a child or whatever, you know, there are emotions that exist that you can't even put a word to, you know what I mean? And, and it's those kind of emotions that are like really real. But what can I tell you about Fuckeye? Um, boy, Fuckeye is an indigenous word, you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, contrary to the four-letter word that it sounds like, the profanity, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, the four-letter word Buckeye was actually a very uh, it's a uh, it was a very generous word originally Tone had Tone had touched uh, based on it perfectly in his interview where um, where the generation that we were brought up in before we were halfway in between Buckeye meaning to beat him up you know what I mean or to fight with all your heart and also to never give up so they kind of had a very it had a very uh, it at the time that we were growing up it was very closely related but the generation before us fuck i was a very aggressive profanity and you would you know what i mean you would only use those words in the harshest of uh, of situations yeah typically but, uh but um yeah well it came into our lap i'd say first first ambition we had with it was about in 1991 and then it just stayed a conversation for about, uh, it, it was a con- nothing but a conversation for at least six years. And then finally, you know, it was talking to most of the boys where we decided to take action. And initially it was a start, it, it was a, a big vision for it was is because when we were growing up surfing, a lot of us wanted to be in this generation of welcoming westernization. We wanted to represent, we, I, we wanted ride be team riders for all these big brands you know like gotcha and quicksilver these you know it'd be great to say i'm i'm a team rider i'm sponsored i'm getting free gear from these guys but in the course of just surfing guam skating guam doing martial arts in guam we understand that we're making our sacrifices on guam you know we wanted to represent something that was from guam but then in the course of representing something from guam and and emerging into that and, and seeing how deep that you know, these ambitions grow even beyond the island itself. We started to fall in love with not just doing jiu-jitsu or not just doing jiu-jitsu on Guam or not just surfing on Guam, but we fell in love with the essence of doing jiu-jitsu in itself, of surfing in itself, and you know what I mean, and uh, 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 of perseverance in itself. And it was a, you know, so it was a course of, in all of that, it wasn't just something that we wanted to, uh, it, it grew to become something that not we didn't just want it to represent guam but we wanted this to represent desire ambition drive perseverance spirit you know what i mean 
basically like the Force. Uh, you guys watch Star Wars? Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's an old movie. <laughs> Hold on, I, I think I lost the volume there. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can yeah, hear you loud and so clear. Good. Okay. I don't know why I can barely hear you guys. Because uh, we Hold weren't on, talking. Real- yeah, yeah, we, we were just listening to you, man. <laughs> you guys have a... Does this thing have a volume thing? What was I saying? Um, yeah, and that's how we wound up here. <laughs> <laughs> nice, man, nice. So it's two, was it 2006 you started the brand? Um, 1997. Ooh, 1999 wow. is when we actually had our first license, and that originally started out. At that time, I was uh, working on a fishing boat. It had been started between myself. It, uh, initially, it was an ambition between a buddy and mine, uh, uh, me, myself, and a guy named Patrick Fleming. And it became that. It was that conversation among the boys for years, and then. The catalyst for that was uh, meeting again with an old friend, uh, John Cobble, and um, we got it started. Uh, we initially started selling out of uh, our backpacks. You know, we all had other jobs at that time. So we're selling out of the backpack. I didn't have a car yet. I was working on a fishing boat. In between my fishing trips, I would go and I would walk around the village and I would sell shirts. Mm. Or I would use a company van on the way to picking up uh, and dropping off tourists. I would stop over at friends' businesses and I would sell shirts. Yeah. There, eventually, was able to buy a, a used truck, and then now, uh, my back instead of a backpack, it became a uh, a flatbed. You know what I mean? And then, um, my buddy John had been selling. Uh, my partner at that time was also selling out of his house. We had friends that were living in different parts of the village where they got their own backpacks, and they were we had this satellite distribution program where people were selling out of their backpacks, going into uh, doing. Um, home services, going into people's homes and setting up their own private thing. And then finally it was uh, our most prestigious surf shop at the point uh, wanted to carry the stuff, wanted to carry our label. And Mm. um, back then that surf shop was like a really big deal. They had all the cool Stussy stuff. You know, they had only the cool brands were there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with the ambition, the initial ambition, wanting to be to excel and with surfing, it became, it was so mind-blowing just to see Fuckeye right beside Stussy and uh, Quicksilver. To see it on the shelves there was really, it was so enchanting at that point. We settled, we we were selling it to the to the surf shop, only making two bucks a t-shirt yeah. off of our profit, where they were making the lion's share. But, you know, I think for us, the value of it just being up with there was just... I, it was it, it was satisfying, you know. And then um, it got to a point where uh, it got to a point where um, I had to lose. I was having a disagreement disagreement with my boss, working on a fishing boat. He ended up letting me go. I had been immersed in the uh, water culture life, mm-hmm. working on a boat. Big game fishing was my job, man. I was imagine I was working on a deckhand on a boat, getting paid to go fishing. Big game fishing, and then because our customers can't take the fish home, yeah, to their hotels. The majority of our customers were 
Japanese tourists. They couldn't take their fish home. So we'd get to keep the fish and sell the fish. Mm. So it was crazy. I mean, I went from going to college, aiming to be a doctor, running out of money. So I had to come back to my island with nothing and just no money in the pocket to finally I'm making really good money. I mean, back in the day, I, boy, I'd, I'd say some days I was walking home with like $100, $150 in tips. Mm-hmm. You know, no real bills because I was still staying at home. Yeah. Fresh fish every day. And in five years, you know, in the first two years of that five years, I never even had to use a T-shirt. So <laughs> it was a dream job. And then uh, finally, after losing the job in 2000, I was able to, um, uh, instead of moving back to a job on the boat, reflected back to the whole uh, campaign and definition of fuck I, which we were really embracing back then, which was perseverance and decided to go full time with the job and say, okay, this is not, uh, this vision started to understand that fuck I was more than much more than a business venture. And, and the growth of fuck I was much more important than our personal ambitions. We started to understand not just what the, what fuck I could do, not only for Guam, but we understood that even though other people were doing it at that same time, mm-hmm. but we understood that the word, you know, it's it, it, it's beneficial to everywhere yeah. to have uh, to have proficiency supported with positivity. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So that just became the drive, and we kept moving. Uh, you know, my partners had uh, started wanted other things. So they both left the company and I was left with the, uh, I was left to, uh, I was left at that time. We had just moved into a shop mm-hmm. and, uh, decided to try and make it work. And we're 16 years after having that first shop, you know what I mean? At, it took us five years to get into our first brick and mortar place. And then now we're still trying to make it work. Nice. 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 So when, when did, uh, jujitsu enter, enter the fray? Jiu-Jitsu entered the fray right in the beginning. It was funny because, like, I, before uh, going back earlier in the conversation, we had mentioned how Fakai was was in a very aggressive word, and the generation yeah. above us was always use it violently, right? Well, the mm-hmm. generation above us was also the police officers. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. even though it, we had done, we had started doing jujitsu because, uh, as uh, for anybody that serves on Guam you'll know that sometimes we get some good surf, but the most of the time we don't have any surf. And mm-hmm. if you get so stoked from surfing good waves, the absence of waves can really lead to a terrible depression. So it, to get rid of this depression, we wanted to find other hobbies and jujitsu was a hobby yeah. that was able to keep us really, really stoked. Not only because, you know, we went, you know, just like everybody else when jujitsu first came around, coming from a fighting island, you know what I mean? self-defense is very, very important. Yeah. Being able to defend yourself in jiu-jitsu brought that solution, brought the formula like nobody ever did, no, no, no one else did before. You know, it was just, if you were to take jiu-jitsu, it worked, it, this, this concept of a weight class and size difference wasn't even really too significant because jiu-jitsu... Using jiu-jitsu versus a guy who doesn't use jiu-jitsu at all, man, I mean, you know, it's, you guys know how that goes, you know? So, so yeah, so jiu-jitsu was in the early picture, but the thing is, is when we were selling stuff out of backpacks and training jiu-jitsu, 
and fuck I still meaning to fight and us launching this all sports team called Team Fuckeye, mm-hmm. people started for the longest time there was this misinterpretation that Team Fuckeye was a fighting group. Yeah. And there was a there was a session years ago where we were the only guys that were training jujitsu in this secret training group. And they had people from the police department that were that that, that had their own secret group of people that were training jujitsu. Mm-hmm. One day our groups met up and you know just law enforcement i guess you have to you have to either develop an ego or develop a way of falsifying an ego you know mm-hmm. you have to always have the upper hand and i understand how that goes so when it came down when it came time to the sparring and our our main guy sparred against their main guy and our main guy ended up serving their main guy they didn't really like us too much so this whole notion of the team fuckeye being this fight group evolved. I mean, we it got to the point where we even being we were even investigated by the DEA. People thought that we were this drug smuggling cartel. <laughs> I mean, incredible. And you know, and in, and, in, and in the course of martial arts training, and, and I don't want to say the word extreme sports because extreme the word mm. extreme sports sounds too. Uh, it sounds so uh, outside, you know what I mean? It's yeah. not like, I don't think an extreme, anybody who does these things, I don't think they really call out rightfully, you know, I don't think they pridefully say, I'm an extreme sports guy, or I don't know. I, I, I'm not, an, I'm not <laughs> yeah. really that dude or whatever. I just can't imagine people ever really saying that about themselves. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, yeah, so we went over, there was a lot of rocky road for us uh to grow, especially in the population of 150,000, you had you had a good amount of the population that wanted to see their wanted to see their peers and their friends succeed. Mm-hmm. But then you also had this other part of the ability of the population that also thought that these guys were getting a little bit too loud, or they were mm-hmm. getting a little bit too known. Too, they were getting too known too fast. Mm-hmm. We got to put a stop to this for whatever. So I'll tell you, it's so crazy that we still, this is, we've been around, we've had our first business license, we signed it in 1999, Mm -hmm. but we still have people that come into the shop today still wondering where the fuck I gym is at, you know what I mean? (laughs) 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 And that's happened, and and, and, you know, to be honest with you, the, the exclusive association with mixed martial arts before, as much as it got uncomfortable here, Mm-hmm. It was a road and it was an identity that we've become great, very grateful for because, you know, it's been able to grow this brotherhood. I think it was that mentality, the, eso, the ethos of, of an aspiring martial artist or an, uh, an ambitious fighter or whatever. It was that ethos that really, man, I mean, fuck Viking, look, that's how I met you, dude. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you, you develop this great bond with people around the world and... You know, even before, right now, when you look at a mixed martial artist, people can see that the mixed martial artist or jiu-jitsu guy, these people are intelligent, mm. were kind human beings. But before, back in the day, where a mixed martial artist was like a cage fighter or whatever, or every guy with tattoos was whatever, you know what I mean? Like, not many people could see this, uh, could see the positivities or they can't see the brains behind all of these colors of these people. So when we're... Being here on this small island, we're trying to campaign positivity, 
But meanwhile, we got tattoos, we're smoking weed, and we're hanging out with all these flagrants and all of this. It was really, I, you know, to, to be honest with you, sometimes I don't even know. I don't even know how we. If I if I try to think of it mathematically, it makes no sense how we're still here. You know, but if you know when you really escape that and you just focus on the bond and the love and the respect, ultimately, I think really it's really respect that has just kept us here for this long. You know what I mean? I think hearing this, uh, like the history of uh, of what you just uh, said about the island and the culture, it's uh, very hard to imagine because people nowadays, like myself and others I've brought along, when we came to visit the island, it's nothing but just good vibes and and uh, and good times. <laughs> no, and and and, and, it, and it is, and 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 that's not temporary. That's very real. But I think a lot of that that you see when I look at the conditions you came, you know what I mean? Every time the Mariana is open and look at that, this is a, I think what's good is that, you know, I think that the, 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 the carpet or the road that you guys have walked on is a road that has been built through this positive. And I'm not saying that we built the road because a lot of people, there's, there's just so many people that have contributed to not just what Fakai is doing, but just like who who can see like the benefits of an era of positivity. You know, before it almost, you know, there are certain people think that you have to take something out of somebody else's hands if you really, to really own it. You know what I mean? And really, I think if you really just start to like kind of deprioritize the ownership of things and just kind of learn, find a way to be, if you could find a way to find happiness and through the happiness of other people, you're, I think you're in a, you're in a pretty decent place. You know what I mean? Some people, and we all know that some people find misery in the happiness of others. And some people find happiness in the misery of others. You know, if we want to really be connected as a people or whatever, and I'm not fucking a preacher, I get, all kinds of things wrong and just let me know if I'm sounding too freaking crazy. But you know, like if you're, if you're going to find misery in the happiness of others and happiness in the misery of others, how are you going to fucking, how are we unified like that? You know what I mean? So now it's just finding a way now, instead of just being happy with the happiness, happy, finding happiness in the happiness of others. And instead of just finding misery in the misery, misery of others, it's the ethos of martial arts that tells you that says, okay, okay, now there is misery here and we can be miserable at the miseries of others, but now we need to graduate and how do we turn this misery into happiness? You know what I mean? And if we can find a way how to want to be a part of that solution for other people and finding value and understanding that their happiness can mean our happiness and whatever, and you know what I mean? And just all of that, I think if you, you come closer to a better place, you know what I mean? You're, you're building a better world. You know, so I don't even know how the hell we got off to that freaking tangent, man. But uh, <laughs> uh-huh. but it's a pretty good yeah, message. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and, and it's a message that 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 people have been speaking. I think people have said it in so many ways, in so many languages. But I think essentially, you know what I mean? It, it's like you know, it's like uh, yeah. I think a lot of people have said it and. Just people are now able to interpret it, embrace it, 
and more importantly, understand it and activate it. And you know, I, these days, and now a lot of these guys that are doing this campaign of, of positivity before it was, I, I, you know, I don't know how it was hundreds of years of, b- before, but it was easier for the weak man to cry for, you know what I mean? It's easy for the weak man to cry for peace because you don't know how to fight, you know, but if you got the fucking baddest guy in the room telling everybody to be peaceful, there's a little, di- there's a different, there's a different respect and a different attention that goes there. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so, so that's what I think, I think fuck guys done that a lot. You know, a lot of formidable, formidable people have come to uh, show their support and their love for the company. And, you know, I, I, uh, I think in, I really wish we could have be those millionaires or those billionaires who could pay these guys, the, who could pay these guys for the, the support that they give, you know what I mean? Pay them for what we'd love to pay them. But right now, I mean, that's one thing where we, we may have succeeded in some ways, but I think, in, I think we could be more successful in other ways. You know what I mean? But, uh, you know, we're not going to let that deflate us. You know, it's great to know there's room for improvement because that means that we can only get better, you know? Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me about your gym, purebred. Purebred boy, purebred, great, great academy. Uh, the first total fight center on Guam. Uh, purebred came around where there were other martial arts that were claiming to be street lethal and being dangerous and all of these things. But when purebred jiu-jitsu came around, uh, purebred could really back it up. Thankfully, you know, I mean, outside of the gym challenges that came to probably most schools that, that were around in the early days of, mm-hmm. uh, of jujitsu and uh, no holds barred fighting, mixed modernized mixed mar- uh, modernized martial arts. You know there were all the the thing that purebred brought to the table is purebred backed it up. You know and and uh, purebred was there. So purebred was a martial arts academy that was brought that came to Guam when all the other martial arts academies. You know there were still there was still the uh, the promise of the force and the secret power and you know like. Uh, if you ask, uh, you know, I remember I, I had trained other martial arts before. And when I would ask an instructor about, you know, when is it going to work, I would more get the the sense that you will be, re- you will know when it's time. Like you will know that this will work in a fight <laughs> because the fucking force will take over, right? Be good and your goodness will win the fight. Like fucking God. Jiu-Jitsu came around there and said, okay, when this guy does this, he's going to do this and he's going to do this. And it was shocking. Because, like, trained martial arts, probably five other martial arts five years before I did jiu-jitsu. And, you know, whenever you want to show these, sometimes you get eager, you want to show these things to your friends. Yeah. Or your friends want to see what you learned in the class, right? And say, okay, all right, okay, here, here, try this. Okay, do this, and then what? No, no, because, no, you're supposed to, no, you're supposed <laughs> to hit like this. You're supposed to grab me, and it would never fucking work. And then, damn, I went to a freaking, first I was a big Aikido fanatic, and then mm-hmm. I went to a class... And I remember this smart mouth guy was telling me how how shitty Steven Seagal was as a martial artist. And this guy was a dick, but he asked me to roll. And he rolled the living crap out of me, so that made it even worse. <laughs> but, but you know what I was really blown away was we learned the oompa and we learned how to shrimp. You know what I mean? And we learned how to, uh, we learned uh, when you hold mount, how to... Like, 
how to be like a table, how to hold your base. Mm-hmm. And when I sparred that day, the guy showed it to me. I probably grilled it like only like 10 times max. And then it worked in sparring. I said, holy shit. This thing worked. This guy showed me this minutes ago and it worked today. Whereas everything else is you have to wait, train it 10,000 times. And only then you will know, maybe fuck off. But, uh, yeah, jujitsu brought that kid purebred was the face of that. You know, purebred was the face of that here on Guam. So even though right now it's, it's, it's a jujitsu academy here on Guam, mm-hmm. it did start as a total fight center. And it was started with that question. It was started because we were pursuing martial arts that worked. So purebred has been around, started in Japan. You know, they've opened up uh, segments throughout different parts of the U.S. You know, I think it's only, it's actually in Guam, mostly in Guam that it's a pure, and also in Philadelphia because BJJ United is a purebred affiliate. Right. I think it's only probably in Guam and Philadelphia that we're primarily a jiu-jitsu academy. Okay. That's a Gerard, Gerard Wiener, right? Mm. Gerard Wiener, yes. Great guy. Magnificent mm. dude. Uh, great people in that academy. Awesome. Nice, nice. So, Rome, um, could you could you tell us a bit about maybe for people who don't know or you know the island or yourself? Could you tell us a, a day, uh, you know, a, a day of Rome, like what what you go through in a day, what you do? Okay, I'll tell you what I'll okay. Uh, I'll tell you what I did today. Because I think it's a very out. special lifestyle that. A lot of us city people don't really understand. But you know, I have a, I have a good I have a good recommendation for that. And I and I can't say this because I'm not, I've never been a full time city guy. But what really changed my uh, my understanding and my experience of the city, what changed it entirely, was chasing sunsets and sunrises. You know, like. Hmm. When you put the city in the scope, if you put the, the, the city, for me, when I put the city in the framework of sunrises and sunsets, then the city life becomes very, very uh, much more enjoyable for me personally. But yeah, so going back to your question, what I do is I have this sleeping disorder where I get up before the sun rises. So what am I going to do if I get up before the sunrise? I used to reject it, but now I embrace it. So I go up. I watch a sunrise. Um, right now, I've been watching the sunrise from the shop. So I watch a sunrise. I water our plants. Started my first. Uh, started working on my first. Uh, working in on my first marijuana plant, which has been really uh, nice. So water the plants. Play some music. Maybe take a couple puffs. Have a coffee. Go to the beach. By that time, it should be about seven o'clock. During the rainy season, stand by for rainbows. Come in, get some work done, power in, put in two hard hours of great work. Get that in there. Uh, Then the shop should open, have some lax time, fill my midday with work. And then uh, by five o'clock, try to get in some kind of an exercise, something just to get the endorphins turning. So that by, by that time for sunset, uh, my head is in a good place and that sunset gets a little bit prettier. Watch the sun, come back to work, have a beer, 
maybe a place and I uh, and then I uh, watch um, and then I watch Netflix until I sleep which hopefully doesn't take too long and then I wake up in the morning get a little bit depressed of how I didn't sleep enough and then I realize it's a fucking stop being depressed get out there and go chase it you know so that's what it is How about you, Viking? What's your day like, man? What's your day been like? Well, it's uh, I'm in the countryside at the moment, so it's uh, it's pretty much just some sort of farm work, I would say. So yeah, I also wake up around six um, just to get some loan time because uh, I have a kid and and all that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How's the family, dude? It's uh, it's good. It's good. You yeah. Know, it, it, despite of um, everything that we're going through, um, you know, with the with the COVID nineteen, it's uh, yeah. probably one of the better times that we we have a lot of time to spend with our families. Um, and you know, the the sun, the weather's great, the food's great. The only thing is, we don't have jujitsu. But um, it's uh, like life could be worse. <laughs> How's so a how's, doing, how's a COVID situation in, in Guam? Boy, you know, the COVID situation in Guam, you know, unfortunately, and I'm going to fucking say it, our government is failing us right now. But uh, or I feel they are. You know, I don't think I think that our team could be a little bit tighter. So that makes it a little bit frustrating. But the COVID situation in Guam right now, I'd say there are a lot of people that are angry. But I'll tell you, there are, I'd say a good amount of the population that's happily has remembered that we're living in an island paradise you know like uh, you know i i think like yeah. uh, right now what, what we've found is that people have become so dissatisfied with what money can't bring that, that that's happened long enough where people are starting to find out stuff that money can't buy you know what i mean and uh, mm-hmm. and that's been really good now like you know we live in tumon so now you see entire families before I'd say if you rewind this 20 years before mixed martial arts came to Guam, if you were walking on the fucking side of the road, everybody's going to ask you what was your problem. If you were running on the side of the road, you were probably training for a fight. You know what I mean? If you're running on the side of the road and you have a shaved head, you are definitely training for a fight. That's what's <laughs> That was the concept. You know, like really... I. Like, hey, man, I saw you walking on the side of the road. If you were to tell them, yeah, because I parked far, people would be like, you're, what? Are you crazy? <laughs> so walking used to be a very rare thing here. It was, it gets so darn hot that walking is unheard of. But now, I mean, in only two months, I'd say I've never seen two months as crowded. And now it's not just the athlete. You're not seeing that guy that just wants to be athletic. You're seeing the parents taking their families for a walk. Mm. You're seeing, I'd say, our sunset watching population has probably tripled right now just in Tumon Bay. Mm. You know, so that's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of negative because you're seeing this coagulation of people. You know what I mean? That's like all of this stuff that we're supposed to be avoiding. But, you know, you're kind of like, Damn, man, you know, like, and, and a lot of people are starting to wake up here to all those conspiracy theories that are out there. Oof. You know what I mean? And, and uh, 
you know, all that talk. But I'd say the COVID, yeah, the COVID here has been really, uh, I think most of the people here have found a way to really find that silver lining, you know, and, mm. and you know, just for, I don't know, maybe God meant it to be that way. The sunsets here since the COVID, the COVID has started have been fucking absolutely ridiculous. I'd say when you, have you guys heard of the green flash? Uh, you showed it to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I showed it to you, right? But so the green flash is like this sunset thing that some people make it. It's like in their bucket list. They want to do this once before they die, right? Fuck. Yeah. I'd say like this last week, it's Friday. This, we probably had like at least three, three wow. green flashes, maybe four, maybe five. But, you know, so... You know, the islands, thankfully, it gives us that. And, and, and I think right now, what, what I do realize right now is that even, I think not having so much to do here on Guam makes you kind of watch the skies a little bit more. So I think there are nice, gorgeous sunsets everywhere. I do believe that. You know, but I think just with just our climate, our atmosphere, our way of thinking here, people, it's a little bit easier to focus on them. You know what I mean? Could you tell people who don't know uh, what the green flash is? The green flash, what the green flash is, it could attest this to being like the sun. So the green flash, all the green flash is, it's this final light that you see. Oh, wait, wait. Oh, oh there. It's this final. See that last, that last shimmer right there? Yeah. That's, that last... That's the green flash right there. That's all you see. It's really, and to tell you the truth, and here's a great secret for you. If you want to see the green flash anywhere, you just look at the sun, and then you just take a piece of paper, and then you just, instead of waiting for the sun to drop, you just pick up your horizon. Green flash. Green flash. (laughs) (laughs) Now you know. But, yeah, that's what happens here. Okay. But, yeah, man, I think, uh, you know, for our jiu-jitsu academies here, you know, now we're just, we've broken stuff down into different phases. You know, I think uh, I think our government is getting a little bit more comfortable. I think it's shocking, man. Like, I think this whole thing kind of, you can't expect, you know, nobody's been, nobody's seen this kind of stuff right here. This is some, you know, who would have been great for this is the Avengers. If we had the Avengers... <laughs> Stark would freaking solve this problem. Oh, so man, so let, let's let's because uh, uh, what do you call it? I, I've got I've got to actually dash, man. <laughs> I could talk here all day, but um, yeah, let's 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 wrap this up, man. Um, okay, yeah, great. Usually, like uh, you've given us so so many good points, really, actually, um, with regards to um, oh, actually. There's a, there's one more thing that I wanted to to ask. Do you still have that uh, old artifact that you guys found on the on the beach, in the shop? Uh, which one? We the have giant, several. Oh, the giant head thing. Yes, the giant stone head. Yes, we do. You want to see it? Yeah, yeah. Could you uh, do a little uh, like background, a, a short you know intro to okay. to this? Well, you know event. what what's what's interesting is I think we may have found. Since then, I think we may have, since you came, so yeah. 
So we okay. Uh, let me. Did you tell June about the artifact Stonehead already? No, no, no. Okay, maybe. All right. So, anyways, about uh, so about thirty years ago, my friend's brother had come across uh, an artifact in the jungle, a Stonehead mm. that he that he brought home to the family. But the family was so spooked that instead of letting it bringing it inside. They wanted him to keep it outside. So he, en- <laughs> he ended up passing away about 10 years. This guy always used to come back with artifacts. There are certain people here on the island mm-hmm. that have a gift for getting artifacts from... They seem to get... So like 10 people can walk into a jungle looking for artifacts. Yeah. But one guy who's not looking for artifacts is going to walk out with three. Okay. So... <laughs> That happens very often. So a lot of people, the the overall belief right now is that you don't find artifacts, you receive them as gifts. So anyways, this guy used to receive these artifacts. He used to, he always had that knack for finding a lot of artifacts, sling stones, etc. Well, Uh so he found this stone head, brought it to his house. His house was his family was all wigged out by it. They say, told him to keep it in the jungle. He ended up passing away, uh... We saw it once at a barbecue. He ended up passing away at his... Uh, he passed away 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. We're artifact fanatics. We took great interest to it. We kept bothering the family. And the family said, Hey, listen. Hold the damn thing, man. You keep fucking bothering us. You know what I mean? So we decided to hold it. But we were... get We were... We were we were asked to hold it with the, with the request yeah. to find out the history of this stone. So we expanded this conversation of this stone for like five years couldn't find out and let me see how long this thing will i'm gonna have to carry it over here yeah. so if you don't mind i'll be right back <laughs> oh god He's here. yeah yeah that's it right here damn oh, wow yeah i'd say it's about 80 to 90 pounds could you see the face? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so can you see these eyes with a different stone? Mm-hmm. There are different stones in the eyes, but check this out. So we've been I've been searching the internet for a match mm. for five years. Yeah. But finally, a friend goes to a not to a, a a friend goes, one of my buddies goes to a friend, his friend's house, Mukajoni. And he happens to see a stone head in his garden. And he calls me up and he says, Hey dude, I think hey dude, I, I think that I think this thing looks like the stone head in your garden, right? So I'm like, hey, this is just a guy who wants to go smoke joints at his house. I've been talking to archaeologists, I've been talking to professors, I've been talking to all these guys, emailing all these historians and all of that. Yeah. But guess what? It was this guy that went to smoke a joint at his friend's house who ended up finding, I looked all over the internet, encyclopedias, he found a match to this stone head. <laughs> so I go over there and I go and I find, a, I go, you guys can still hear me here? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so I go, I, I finally go and pay this guy a visit to see this stone head at his, uh, at his house and lo and behold, not exactly the same, but they're carved by the same hand. They look like they've mm. been carved by the same hand. Yeah. So it turns out that 
Another year goes by, and I'm trying to chase this guy down. And it turns out that the guy who had carved the other stonehead is the father of this girl who I've known for a long time, long many years. So what we're thinking is I've been scheduling a meeting to ask him the history of this head. Mm. Now, that probably is going to that meeting. He's an introvert who lives in the jungle. So that meeting's probably not going to happen for a little while. But (laughs) the thing is, is there's a a possibility Hmm. that he knows, there's a great possibility that he knows the origin of this head. And there's a small possibility that he may have even made this head. But the thing is, in the course of finding out the, the, the history of this head, Boy, I got to tell you, man, that's been a really, really wild one. I went all the way around the world looking for the, looking for the answer, and I, and I look, I went all the while, all around the world looking for an answer. Searched for, made research, had interviews, had all these questions in Ibiza, in Ireland, and all of that. And in the end, in your the closest in your match that I found <laughs> was from a guy who was smoking a joint at his friend's house. So when I when I get that meeting with that old man, I'll let you know exactly how it goes. A hundred percent. Sure. hundred percent. Yeah. But yeah, this is Alfred. That's his name. And uh, the adventure continues. But I don't know if you know, Viking, did you know that, uh, you know, I was in, I was in Egypt last year hmm. and I had this uh, strange experience with the sun. My first day I went in there to the Cairo Museum and I had, I've been hmm. studying the sun now for quite a while. And I ended up having this weird experience with the sun inside the Cairo Museum. So we went there for a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert at the pyramids. Mm. And when we're standing in line, I'm only in Egypt for maybe 15 hours at this point. Mm. I'm telling my friend about this. My telling my friends there about this really weird experience that I had with the sun at the, you know what I mean, at the museum. So one day we're about to go into the, uh, we're trying to get into the, we're trying. There, there are three different security checks to get into the uh, concert. And what are these security checks? I have to go back because I ended up leaving some. I forgot something again. I forgot something at the security check, so I end up going back to get something at the security check. But I fall far behind my friends. At this point, we're in the desert, so I, I go down to take off my. I have to take off my slippers because I needed to catch these guys in the desert. Because we're moving too fast. I mean, I needed to move faster. And then, as I go down to take off my slippers, I come across this. Oh well, another artifact. It's a two. It's a two-sided convex discoidal. And about a year later, after because I started started it for about a year, a year later. I noticed that there are these indentations here along here that have the marks that have nine of the 12 marks of the Zodiac that fall perfectly in line with the Zodiac sign. And this was recovered by the pyramids. When I went to go and research uh, the Zodiac and the pyramids, there is an Egyptian Zodiac and then uh now I'm in the process. If you guys happen to know any really, really skilled historians, we're really trying to find out uh, what this stone was about. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, we'll have that conversation offline. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Yeah. 
Okay, okay. Sorry about that, man. It's like you touch this thing, then it starts to react. But yeah, man, if you guys happen to know any really good historians, any of those guys that talking ancient aliens, let them know I got something right here that I think really needs uh, <laughs> or really tell some stories. Hey, and check this out, guys. It changes colors. Huh? But, yeah. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, my man. Um, I've got uh, I got some homeschooling to go and do. <laughs> yeah, I got to do, do my little boy's schooling and stuff like that, man. But it's been it's been well, an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And uh, yeah, dude, great talking to you too, man. Yeah. Thank you very much for the time. Uh, sorry if I uh, say if I went off a tangent there, but I always do. No, thanks for the his- no, thank you for the history lesson, man. Because it's um, I, I like to I studied history in school, so I, I like to you know hear about other people's cultures and stuff like that, you know, especially. Oh uh, well, yeah, man, yeah, I'll tell you, boy. man. There, there's some deep history here, and uh, we'll tell. You know what I mean? Uh, you you'll hear about it later on. Well, I've, I've, got, <laughs> I've got to come and visit Guam, man. <laughs> amen, amen. There's great jujitsu here. There's great living. Viking, we're waiting for you. I'll be back soon, very soon. (laughs) Okay, guys. Well, until then, rock and roll, literally. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate everything, man. And uh, be safe out there, man. You know, we're uh, it's a small world. For sure. Thank you very much, man. Thank you very much, my friend. Listen, take care. Be safe, be happy, be healthy, and enjoy the sunrises and sunsets, man. Okay, God bless. May the forest be with you. You too, man. Take care. <laughs> okay. Hey, buddy. Take care. Shoot.